Our first split sermon will be brought to us by Matthew Steele, summoned to Caesarea. Thank you, Mr. Can. So, I feel undressed up here. I forgot my belt. So I'm just going to go and tell you now. So if you see some, you know, like this, I'll just stay behind the pulpit. Brian wouldn't give me his belt. Can you believe it? And you thought a brother would help you out. A few uh, weeks ago, I came into the kitchen, and Joseph has walked from his bedroom. This is in the morning. He's just woken up. And he's rubbing his eyes. He's got his little blanket, and he's just tired, you know, trying to, trying to wake up. I said, Joseph, boy, are you doing okay? Yeah. Do you, do you sleep okay? Yeah. Do you have a, some dreams? Yeah. What you dream about? Well, there were, these, there were these cows, and they were really sick. I kid you not. <laughs> he was dreaming about cows being sick. Now, that was either because he'd recently read the Bible. We have a children's Bible, and, and so he's fully familiar with the story of Joseph and his dreams. So either he's having the same dreams... Which isn't good, guys. We've got to get ready. So we need, to, we need to build a barn, and we need to get planting crops pretty quick. Right? So I thought that was, that was funny. But there was a time in the life of God's people, in the life of his church, in Israel, the church in the wilderness, where dreams were commonplace. And in many ways, I wonder what's happened to make that not be the case today. But I want to look at one of those dreams, one of those visions or trances that one of the apostles had today. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 9, it says, <clears throat> and we're kind of breaking into the story here a little bit. It says, the next day as they went on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter went up onto the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then, you know, I don't know if this happens to you, if you set aside some time to pray. I start to feel hungry, too. And then I kind of fall asleep as well. Only in his situation, he went into a trance. Went into a trance and then started to get some communication. It says, but while they were made ready, he fell into that trance, and he saw heaven opened, and an object like a great sheet bound on the four corners, descending to him, and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. A voice came to him, Is Peter, kill and eat, you're hungry kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have ne never eaten anything common or unclean. 
And the voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. And I presumably, each time he objected, I'm not going to do that. I've never eaten anything like that. And the object was taken up again into heaven. So it's this point that the majority of the Christian world say that we can eat bacon. Because that's what this passage is about, right? But it's also at this point where we say, no, 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 that's not what this passage is about at all. This is about what comes after. And it is about what comes after. Yet, sometimes I wonder if we really take that lesson to heart. Because we're so focused on defending what it isn't that maybe we don't fully incorporate what it is. So, what is it? What is it that we're to learn from this? What is that common thing or that we or that Peter thought was common? What is that unclean thing that he thought was now cleansed? And it's interesting too. In a sense, Peter was just following his faith, just following the doctrine as he knew it, just following his life experience automatically. And most times that is good that we do that. That's why we have doctrines and principles. But what he failed to remember was that that doctrine, that principle of calling a certain group of people, or maybe just everyone else, unclean, was not a principle of God. It was a construct of man. God does decide if a person is clean or unclean. It's up to him. If a person is of him or not, he decides. So continuing on in verse 17, it says, Now while Peter wondered within himself what the vision he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down. Uh, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear his words from you. And then he invited them in and lodged them. So on the next day, Peter went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered into Caesarea. And now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him 
and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. That's curious, isn't it? I thought Cornelius got this. I thought he was following God. Why was he trying to worship a man? Was it because he had not yet gotten the whole picture? He didn't fully understand the relationship that he should have with God. And therefore, the relationship that he should have with this fellow man, that no man should be worshipped. It's interesting. So here we have this man who is trying to obey God, follow God. Yet, clearly, some of his beliefs are not quite accurate. So Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. And he talked with him. He went in and found many who had come together. And then he said unto them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent me? So this law, this law that made Peter being in this guy's house unlawful, that, that ceremoniously made him unclean by being in this house. This law that he could not enter the home of the Gentile. You know, before this episode, if you challenged Peter on that belief, I don't think he could have pointed to any scripture. I don't think he could have given any evidence that said you cannot go into this man's home. It was a law of man. It was a construct of man. It was a construct of men and women who had the oracles of God, who had the scriptures. It was their construct. It was their law. A fabrication. It was not biblical. And yet, even though Peter was following that practice up to this point, he was still of God. He was still God's apostle. He still had the Spirit of God in him, even with this fault. Peter was still in possession of the Holy Spirit. So Peter asked, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your arms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. And he is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. They wanted to learn. They had faith. 
They had an understanding. They had a knowledge of God, but they wanted more. And this, of course, was the whole purpose of Peter being here. So Peter opens his mouth and says, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And him God raised up a third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. A beautiful, succinct, and powerful packaged message about the life and the sacrifice of Christ. And Peter packs an incredible amount of experience, as we know, into this passage. Firstly, for us, he states clearly that it is God who is the one that determines who belongs to him and who does not. He said, it is Christ who is the judge of the living and the dead. Not man. It's not up to man to say whether or not this soul or that soul is or is not of God. That's man's construct. We understand this. We understand it with our mind, but it's so easy to forget it with our heart. We all make judgments. We all make decisions about other people based on how they behave, how they dress, whether or not the guy preaching is wearing a belt. <laughs> we all make those decisions. We try to make them in a godly manner, and then perhaps we just try not to make those decisions at all, those judgments. And those judgments, when we do make them, we try and find godly principles of whether or not we can trust this person as a brother in Christ. There is a certain level of understanding that a man or woman must have before they can be considered godly or in Christ. Would you agree with that statement? kind of a trick question. Because who decides 
what that level of understanding is. Now, don't get me wrong. Knowledge, the truth of God, is vital. But who decides? What benchmark, then, should we use? If we can't just use knowledge, if we can't just use doctrinal truth, or how even a person applies that doctrinal truth in their life, we need a benchmark. We need to know if that brother or sister is really a brother or sister. It was even more vital for these folks. Because back in that day, you could have a visitor come through, and you didn't know who they were. And you had no Google to go look up whether or not they were telling the truth. And you could not check them on Facebook. Right? So you needed, a, even more than now, a method by which we can understand whether or not this individual was a brother and sister in Christ. So what is that mechanism? How can we really make that assessment? If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. <clears throat> you know, when I consider my, my own conversion experience, my own walk so far, and many of you also, Ken confessed in the room over here that he's a former free will Baptist. And I wonder, do you have any will left, or is it just... See, I wasn't a free will Baptist. We were, we were the, we do what we're told Baptist, I guess. <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. That's to do with Calvinism and all that good stuff. But, you know, consider your former walk. Apostle Paul tells us to do that. Where have we come from and where we are now? Were you doctrinally correct always and forever? No. There was a time I didn't keep the Sabbath. All the holy days. Did that mean that my walk with Christ, my conversion experience, my understanding that I was a sinner and I needed the redemptive power of Christ's blood on me, did that mean that was invalid? Well, no. Because... We started where we started, and God has brought us to where we are. So, keeping that in mind, Paul says in verse 8, For you are once darkness. And I find that interesting. It's not that you were once in darkness. You were once darkness. It's much more encompassing, isn't it? For you were once darkness, but now you are the light, or our light, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things 
that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Paul gives us an encouragement. He gives us a warning gives us both sides of this equation. He says in verse 9 and 10 that we should walk as the children of light. That we are the children of light. And that we should not fear the darkness. The darkness runs away from light. We are the children of light. Does that mean that we are perfect in all our practices? Perfect in the application of all of our doctrines? In the law of God? No. We try. And we work. And we work some more. And we continue to walk as the children of light. He says, rather, that we should walk as the children of light, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Finding it out. Not having found out having it all sewed up, having it all done, he says, finding out. This is a continual process where we learn a new level and then we move on to the next level. Finding out, continuing on. And that's encouraging because there's more for us to learn. There's more for us to participate in. There's more wonders for us to read in the Word of God. There should never be a point when that Word becomes stale or old or in, inapplicable to us. Continuing to find out and seeking the acceptable, what is acceptable to the Lord. Finding out, studying, praying, fasting, seeking the will of God for our lives. Paul was not saying that they had it all down either. Neither should we. He was not saying that their faith was complete. He was not saying all doctrinal understanding was achieved. In fact, at this point in time, the church believed the return of the Lord was coming very soon. Well, they were wrong on that one. But it doesn't invalidate their faith. It just means that they have to find out more of their faith. But Paul does also give us a warning, doesn't he? He says that we should not and cannot accept just any practice in the name of harmony or unity. We cannot do that. Whether it be 
doctrinal practice, whether it be personal practice, we can't just accept it and say, oh, yeah, anything goes. He gives us a warning. Our guiding principle on which we can make a judgment about whether or not a brother or sister is a brother or sister is what he said in verse 9. The fruit of the Spirit. It is goodness, it is righteousness, and it is truth. These are the character traits by which we can make a judgment on what the fruits of the Spirit are. If they are present and working in the lives of our brothers and sisters, then they are, they are of God. And we can have confidence in the fruits of the Spirit. But then the reverse is also true. Remember he says in verse 11, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful, work, unfruitful works, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by then in secret. That could be doctrinal. That could be secret practices seeking to undermine but that could be personal, undermining the unity of the faith and undermining the real fruits of the Spirit. We do have to be careful. We do have to separate ourselves from the ungodly, but without taking the approach that the Jewish world at the time had, where that everyone else is unclean. We're asked to be careful about that. To look for the fruits of the Spirit. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, verse 17, or verse 15, rather, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. But every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And it doesn't take long for the fruits of so-called brothers and sisters to manifest. Just as much as it doesn't take long for the righteous fruits, the godly fruits, to be manifest in the lives of our true kindred. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 44, going back to Cornelius and Peter, it says that while Peter was speaking, while he was testifying of Jesus that he was the Messiah and how he sacrificed himself on a tree, while those words were still hanging in the air, the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 44, fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. They still didn't get it even though they had gone so far as to 
All right, we're with Peter. We're going to go in this house. I hope nobody sees us and reports back to, you know, everybody else. They were still astonished that the Holy Spirit could come on these dirty, unclean Gentiles. This was game-changing time in the church of God. This just started to open it up. And you know what? That's why we're here. Because it was opened up. Because we are certainly not Jews. And that's what the Jews thought, was that God is their God. So it opened up to the world. Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Does that bring anything to mind? What are we counting down to? Ron, what, what day was it? 14. We're counting down to Pentecost, aren't we? They manifested the same characteristics that the chosen people were given through the Spirit of God. Wouldn't you know? It must be the same Spirit then. The Spirit of God at work. Who gives the Spirit? God does. Does He care if we think that that person doesn't measure up or not? Not really. So, by their fruits, the fruits of the Spirit, you will know them, both good and bad. We were all once children of darkness, but through the work of the Holy Spirit directly in our lives and through the lives of others, that light shined on us. We saw the Word of God for, for what it really is. It became alive to us. We've all come to that moment, and maybe it wasn't with lightning and thunder, but it was perhaps just with a gradual and slow conviction. This is truth. This is the word of God. This is the words of Christ presenting itself in our lives. We became students and started to learn what the Spirit was teaching us. In fact, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles in the presence of Peter, as I said before, turned the world upside down again. And it still throws us a curveball, too, because of what we read next. In verse 47, Peter then says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay a few days. Somebody needs to tell God he got the order wrong. Supposed to be baptized, receive the laying on of hands, and then the Holy Spirit. He decides who he gives the Holy Spirit to. Not us. We just have to look for the fruits of that Spirit and be guided 
by that spirit ourselves. Do we judge? Do we judge in our mind, in our hearts? Do we measure others by the practices that they do or do not do? If we do, we should maybe step back, consider judging from the fruits that are manifest in the life of our brothers and sisters around us. Do we look for the fruits of those spirit, of the spirit and accept them? No matter how challenging or uncomfortable it may make us. Because I am sure, while Peter was saying, all right, yeah, I realize these are not unclean anymore, he wouldn't have automatically felt comfortable, would he? He wouldn't have automatically just been right at home. If you've grown up your entire life, don't go in there, Peter. But he did it anyway. And so sometimes we see the fruits of the Spirit working in the lives of others, and we're like, why is that? <laughs> I know some friends of ours. Why don't they get the Sabbath? Why don't they get it? Why don't they get the Holy Days? They would be so blessed by it. And yet, they manifest the fruits of the Spirit. We should accept it even if it is challenging. Pentecost will be on us soon, both physically and ultimately in the kingdom of God. Are we ready? <laughs>